Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Frank Spear. Frank is the owner and managing director of Bounce Cycles, a Preston-based bicycle servicing company. Frank, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Good morning, Scott. Thank you very much. Uh, no, that's uh, absolutely great. Glad, glad to be here. It's a real pleasure having you join us on the air as well, Frank. Um, now, the purpose of this discussion is to establish first and foremost your take on the topic of leadership. So if we look at that word leader first, just to kick the discussion off, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. I think more than anything, um, it, whether... Well, if we take business, for example, business leadership, I think more than anything else, it's, um, the first word that springs to mind is confidence. Confidence uh, from your, your colleagues, uh, your employees, and indeed customers. Um, they need to have uh, confidence in you as a leader that, you know, if, say, for example, from the customer's point of view, um, you do a job and a job maybe doesn't go the way it, it you know, that they thought it would, then you will take charge and you'll deal with it if matters need to be escalated. Likewise, with your, uh, your, your employees and your colleagues, they need confidence in you that you, uh, you're steering the business in the correct direction and that the decisions you make will be in everybody's best interest. Uh, so confidence for me, more than anything else. And in the day-to-day running of um, your business from a sort of people management perspective, how would you describe your leadership style in that sense? Fairly relaxed and approachable, I would, I would hope. Um, I, I do like input um, from staff and, and, and colleagues. I like to I have no problem with somebody challenging me if they think I'm making the wrong decision. Uh, and I, I like open and frank discussions. Um, so, in terms of my leadership style, I've always liked to have been. I mean, I've, I've you know prior to running my own company. I've, I've had management roles previously with other companies and I've always liked to be approachable and and, and I always feel this when, when somebody's open and comfortable you're always going to get the best out of them. Yes, it's a very sort of inclusive form of leadership, that isn't it? Sort of getting people to be confident enough to sort of challenge the leader, have their voices heard and encouraging them almost to take their own leadership on and giving them that empowerment to sort of try their own things take things exactly. on for themselves that's a really really important part of development on the one hand isn't it and it's important for us to make sure that we are learning and actively having experiences because that's how we'll, that's how we develop as both people and as leaders yeah most definitely and, it, and if you don't if you don't nurture that you know these these people that you're working with they're going to be the leaders of tomorrow and and and, and if you don't nurture that they're, they're going to go somewhere else um, you know, I don't think any employer really wants, uh, and, and certainly no employer with a, a, a long-term vision wants high turnover of staff. So you, your staff need to be, uh, you know, you say feel empowered and uh, feel valued, and and I think you do that through through a democracy and through input. And do you think that good and effective sort of leaders and managers are? sort of born with certain qualities or do you think it's something that you can learn and develop? 
Well, certainly. I mean, I, I, I think everybody's a blank canvas, uh, really. I mean, I was, um, I think as a, as a teenager, I was quite introvert, really. Uh, you know, I was uh, not a very confident, uh, you know, young man at all. Uh, but, you know, that, that, that grew over time, um, you know. And I think, I think it was through being given opportunities to do things like public speaking and, uh, you know, being offered management positions and supervisory roles, that it helped me uh, with my own confidence and my own abilities. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And we think about, of course, experience being incredibly critical in your life as you sort of develop from your teenage years onwards. But are there any influential people, perhaps leaders, that you've looked up to and drawn some inspiration from? Oh, definitely. There's, um, I mean, I, I shan't name him, but there's, um, there's a friend of the family that uh, runs a, a very large uh, sort of multi million pound um, engineering firm not far away in Blackburn and um, one thing I always like about this gentleman who, who, who runs the show he's um, you know he, I mean he, he's well known he races Formula One cars as a hobby you know he's um, he's helicopters under his house all, all, all that sort of thing but one thing if you ever ask him what he does for a living he'll always introduce himself as the best welder you've ever met and that's where he started he was a welder um, and he, he makes no bones about it. He said he was kicked up and down in a, a two-down two, two property in Darwin. And I've always liked that because he's when you when you watch him with his employees, he's never lost sight of who he is and he, uh, and who he was. And, and when he speaks to his employees, you can see it. He values their opinion. Right, right, all the way down to the bottom, from you know people who were just starting out apprentices within his firm, right the way to the top, uh, his his directors and so forth. Um, he's not lost that touch. Mm, that's a really fantastic example, and it shows as well that a lot of the most influential people out there can be people who are the closest to us in a way. I mean, of course, um, this gentleman um, you mentioned there is a friend of uh, your family um, in this case, um, but also people who act as just sort of mentors, teachers, people who have that little bit of a guiding hand. They can be some of the real sort of everyday leaders. And I think in the business world especially, we maybe don't recognise such people perhaps as much as uh, we should do because leadership tends to be associated with the glamour of the public eye and celebrity and politics and that sort of thing, doesn't it, in a sense? Well, yeah, I mean, you've got, you know, you've got people like, say, Alan Sugar on The Apprentice and so forth. I mean, I'm not saying he doesn't make great TV, and I'm not saying Alan Sugar isn't a great businessman. Obviously, he is. Um, but that's not the side of it that interests me. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, we want to develop as a business. And, and I, 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 you know, I certainly don't want to be on a TV show, but I, I would like, you know, to be more involved with staff. And I'd like to, you know, grow staffing levels and, and offer opportunities to the community as well. So the people I'm, I, I'm, uh, you know, I look up to the most are the, like the gentleman I've just discussed, who started off with one welding machine, and then by the age of 22 was employing 30 odd people, you know. So um, because that's that's the difference that you'll make to a community more than anything else. Not not a TV show, not celebrity. Mm. It's real tangible growth within a community that, that benefits everybody. I think that's absolutely right. And moving on now to address current affairs, um, the 
ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has really tested leadership, especially in the business world, to the limit at this uh, point in time. And it's really shone a light again on the importance of mental health and well-being with employees having to adapt to working remotely, perhaps losing that social interaction, but also continuing yeah. to work on site under new stringent safety procedures as well in some sectors. Um, how important do you think that mental health is in leadership, both in terms of looking after your own and also that of your colleagues? Well, it is, it's, it's absolutely paramount. Without that, you, you, you've got nothing else. And it's always the, um, I think it's always one of the, I, I mean, I'm glad that mental health is discussed more openly these days, certainly. Uh, it, it's much less taboo. And I think even even men, um, you know, young men are more open talking about it now. And and I think that's one of the jobs, going back to the point about leadership, that's, that it's one of the jobs of the leader to recognise, you know, the importance of it and to keep an eye on your employees um, and yourself, obviously, as, as you just said. <laughs> She's always the, you're always the first person to neglect as yourself. But yeah, it's, it's absolutely, it's paramount because without mental health, you've got nothing. And... Um... With regards to the sort of wider COVID-19 situation as well, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but of course, I'm under the impression that you've been fortunate enough to continue to sort of trade and operate during this time. How has it been sort of on the whole adapting the business to sort of meet that challenge? Well, we, we I mean, we did, we did a few things. I mean, we did, uh, we were offering free servicing for NHS staff. Uh, so we were doing free bike servicing and that was, that, that really took off. Uh, that was uh, that was really popular. Uh, we got a lot of bikes in, and, and it was nice because we're we're relatively city centre based, so um, we've got Preston Royal up the road, and, and a lot of student doctors and nurses and so forth. The bicyclists they're they're on the form of transport; they needed to get to a ship. So you know that that, that was nice um, to do that. In terms of our um, business model and how it affected it, the undoubtedly the, the landscape for us has changed dramatically. Um, our business is primarily uh, aimed towards the high end mountain bike industry, um, and, and our year is based upon the, the races. So that's kind of like farming, that's where the whole year is won or lost with that crop. Um, but usually, it's, you know, sort of March to July time, and of course, all these events are cancelled, so they haven't they haven't actually materialised. So we, you know, we are fortunate in that we've, um, we've been able to continue to trade in a bike shop. We're exempt from closure. Uh, but at the same time, the, 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 the jobs that we were getting, it's not, it's not the same. And like I say, that is where our year is won or lost. And, um, this experience of uh, crisis management as well as what you've learned sort of in your years in business, but also developing and looking up to um, other people as well, um, has sort of left you in no good stead during this time. But if you could actually channel all of that experience and then maybe go back 10 years and address the younger version of yourself, is there anything that you would do differently knowing what you know now as a businessman? Yeah, I would have started much sooner. <laughs> I would have started a lot sooner. Um, I only went into business for myself um, at the age of 33. Uh, I'm 39 now, so I'm only sort of six years in. Um, I would have the, the. I think one of the biggest barriers I possibly face, which is is something I try and uh, I try and point out to um, younger people I speak to, is that you don't have to wait for an invitation to get involved. So this this idea that unless you've done a particular 
um, you know, you've obtained a particular qualification. It means you can't actually do that job. But, well, it's not true. Um, you know, you, this idea that you can, you know, you can enter into a job and if you do really good things and you work really hard, then eventually you'll get a really nice house. And I don't think it works like that, really. I think what I would what I would say is to take ownership yourself, and I would say, look, you you know, explain what it what it takes to actually start a business, you know, to actually maybe incorporate a company online. I think that that, that sort of thing, you, you know, um, is important. That, that just the, the, the little nitty gritty steps that you need to. So, right, I'm an established business now. But I think we live in really exciting times in terms of the internet and, and the fact that you can you can enter into a global market almost straight away uh, with the, the amount of connectivity we've got. So I think if, if I was going to speak to myself again, I would have got going a lot sooner than I did. And having reflected on the past, of course, it only serves that we address the future before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today. Um, as we sort of adjust to the challenges of uh, the new normal and move through the uh, pandemic, Frank, over the next sort of, say, 12 to 18 months, um, what do you envision for yourself and for Bounce Cycles and what do you really hope to achieve as a business? Well, we, we I took a, just going back to the point about leadership uh, and making, you know, making decisions, I took when uh, it was always in the pipeline because we, we, we've begun manufacturing our own parts and tools for sort of um, uh, for the end user and for other shops. Um, we've begun doing that sort of um, a couple of years ago now, and that was taking off really well. And we always we, we were starting to look like that was the way the business was going to go. And when the coronavirus hit, I started trying to anticipate what the impact would be upon the business and, and indeed when the uh, lockdown was announced um, I immediately uh, took steps to change the business premises and um, completely change the focus of the business full time into manufacturing and indeed on the 23rd of May we announced that that's what we're doing so we want to expand our product range we've invested more in machinery and equipment and eventually I want to start a, a new apprenticeship scheme and I want to be uh, giving back to the community and employing uh, young people, uh, young up-and-coming talent. Um, and I think that that is what will drive a business forward, is, is, is young talent, young, hungry uh, men and women who, who, who want to get started in life and do a good job. Sounds like there's some fantastic plans on the horizon then, uh, Frank. And, um, you know, I think given how informative it's been discussing all of this um, with you today, I think it would be brilliant to actually catch up in future and have you back on the programme with us just to see how those um, plans are starting to really come to fruition over the next year. Well, that would be lovely. Yeah, I'm more than happy to. I think it would be brilliant. It's uh, been a real pleasure having you join us on uh, the air today. So I thank you once again for the time taken uh, for that, Frank. Um, But most importantly, until we do speak again um, in future, which I'm sure we will, um, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet, that's for sure. No, definitely not. No, thank you, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure. That was Frank Spear speaking, owner and managing director of Bounce Cycles. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding various senior positions in Tony Blair's 
Cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a 
service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility that will be a very positive outcome absolutely now what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this are you broadly supportive of their measures Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, Well, the the UK and 
and the US and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. 
So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've 
put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. 
and those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced 
shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt 
from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.